Hello and welcome to Living with Steam. This unique podcast features the authentic sounds of trains and railroad operations around Buffalo and Western New York. The recordings you are about to hear were captured in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. I'm Aaron Heverin. The Norfolk and Western Railroad was the last Class I railroad in America to stop using steam locomotives on its trains. The very last one was taken out of service in the mid-1960s, and that truly brought about the end of an era. The steam engine in regular railroad service was finished in the United States. In the early 1950s, John Prophet started traveling outside the Western New York area to try and locate and record any Class I railroad that was still using steam engines in regular service. John normally never ventured further than a destination he could reach in a day's travel. But in June of 1953, as part of a more extensive trip, John found himself in Virginia and was able to record some iconic steam engines of the Norfolk and Western. We'll listen to those recordings and much more in this episode of Living with Steam.
By 1958, every Class I railroad in America had dropped the fires and began scrapping their steam engines, except one, the Norfolk and Western. The N&W stubbornly clung to its roster of steam engines 
as they were still very efficient in moving in and around the mountainous terrain of Virginia and West Virginia. But the writing was on the wall. It was the same old story, costly to maintain, excessive manpower needed to keep an operation, and a parent company seeing the recession of rail transportation in favor of cars, trucks, and airplanes. Dozens of small towns that had a population of 1,500 people or less were seeing trains stop for perhaps a single passenger, or none at all. Many of these towns became flag stops. Some stopped showing up on the NW timetables completely. So was it necessary to continue servicing these locations for very little or nothing in return? The NW had some very profitable periods in their history, mainly by hauling bituminous coal, or black coal, out of the mines of both Virginias. They also offered a very successful passenger service with trains such as the Pocahontas, the Tennessean, the Powhatan Arrow, and more. The NW had an incredible array of trackage that covered most of the southern states and the Midwest. Connections could be made to Cincinnati, New York City, and Chicago. The company had one major factor that set them above most other railroads that were still using steam. They had their own locomotive works in Roanoke, Virginia. Some of the most unique and powerful steam locomotives that ever existed were designed and built by the Norfolk and Western. They were also some of the most beautifully designed. By the mid-1950s, word was getting around that the NW was beginning to remove many of its branch lines that saw little or no use. Tracks were being pulled up, and many small towns found themselves cut off if they depended on the railroad for a continuous and reliable connection to the outside world. These were the days before major highways would crisscross the country. It was becoming all too apparent that the NW was making plans to begin eliminating their steam engines, which was following the trend taking hold of all major railroads throughout the United States after World War II. But before that projected elimination began, one man made it his mission to capture and preserve as much of the remaining steam engines the Norfolk and Western still had running on their trackage. He did it using film and magnetic tape. This man was O. Winston Link. Link was a commercial photographer from Brooklyn, New York. He got his start in the late 1930s working for a company called Carl Boyd & Associates. They were a public relations firm and one of the largest in the world at that time. Link had a talent for taking pictures of very mundane subject matter and making it look exciting. He had a knack for stylizing posed subjects in a photograph and make them look like they were candid. And that's a skill not easy to accomplish for any photographer. In the early 1940s, Link was unable to join the war effort due to an earlier illness which caused him a hearing loss problem. He therefore went to work for the Airborne Instruments Laboratory at Columbia University. Since he was a very talented photographer and he had a degree in civil engineering, Link's job was to take pictures showing the laboratory's development of a device that would enable low-flying aircraft to detect submerged submarines. When the war ended, so did Link's tenure at Airborne Industries. The company wanted Link to stay with them, but he turned them down and opened his own studio in 1946. But he wasn't going to be taking pictures of babies and weddings. O. Winston Link was a commercial photographer who specialized in taking pictures of large machines and civil engineering projects. His client list included Goodrich, Alcoa, 
Texaco, and Ethel. Link always had a love and appreciation for railroads and anything train-related. And there was perhaps no better place to put this admiration to use than in New York City. He had plenty of material to capture on film with the New York Central and Pennsylvania Railroads both having a major presence in New York. But it was while he was on assignment in Staunton, Virginia in 1955 that he began to take notice of the Norfolk and Western. He made his first photograph of an NNW train on January 21, 1955. Whether or not he had no choice due to time-related demands on his work schedule, Link shot that first picture at night. After Link developed and made a print of the negative, he stared at it intently thinking that perhaps he may be onto something. On May 29, 1955, the NNW finally made the announcement that it would begin converting its locomotive power from steam to diesel. It was only a matter of time before the railroad eliminated their steam engines completely. Link sent a letter to the president of the NNW, Robert Hall Smith, outlining the project he wanted to undertake on his own time and wallet to photograph and record the last days of steam on the NNW, a project that would take him all over the NNW tracks in Virginia and West Virginia. He made sure to point out that the project was going to be funded entirely by him. The only thing he asked for was permission to be on the railroad's property and to be left alone to do what needed to be done. From Smith on down the official line, Link's request was unanimously granted and encouraged. He was given carte blanche access to the railroad, its tracks, stations, engine facilities, and its people for as long as he needed. Link figured it would take five years to complete the project. It took six. And according to him, the project ended because there were no more steam engines to photograph or record. O. Winston Link's photographs of the Norfolk and Western Railroad are considered masterpieces, not only for their subject matter, but for the way they captured rural America in a transitional period of time. Many of the locations he photographed no longer exist and many of the small towns he worked in saw their population dwindle down to almost nothing. What set Link's photographs apart from others is that they were primarily shot at night. O. Winston Link developed extraordinary techniques in flash photography, where a large array of specially designed flash units would flood an area with an incredible amount of light. A Norfolk and Western steam engine was almost always the primary subject of each photograph, but the light he introduced bombarded the scene with so much light that it seemed like it was in the middle of the afternoon. However, the areas surrounding his main focal points were dark. His pictures are often considered very surreal, but each one is a masterpiece. Link was able to pose people and other objects in the photo as the train went by so that each looked as if they were frozen in a moment in time, caught in the act of interacting with the train. Again, posed photographs to look like they're candid. Link visited the Virginia area some 20 times and shot over 2,400 negatives by the time he completed the project. And he wasn't finished yet. In 1957, O. Winston Link began another chapter in his desire to capture the last days of Norfolk and Western Steam, making sound recordings. He issued a total of six albums from 1957 to 1977 
entitled Sounds of Steam Railroading. He is perhaps best known for these recordings among rail fans since his photographs remained out of circulation for decades after they were taken. When you view an O. Winston Link photograph, you'll wonder how it was possible that they really weren't seen by anyone until the late 1980s. Actually, that's not entirely true. You could see some of Link's photos if you purchased any of the Sounds of Railroading records he produced of the NW. The front and back cover of each album features several of Link's photos. With the exception of the front cover, the pictures on the back are about the size of commemorative postage stamps. The recording we featured at the beginning of this episode was one that Link made on December 24th of 1957 in the town of Rural Retreat, Virginia. Link captured NW train number 42, the Pelican, as it pulled into Rural Retreat, took on some passengers bound for Roanoke, and then pulled away. What sets this recording apart from others is that when Link arrived in town to make a recording at the Rural Retreat station, he immediately heard the carolin bells from nearby Grace Lutheran Church playing a Christmas carol. While Link's assistant started setting up the equipment, Link went to the church and sought out Kathy Dodson, the woman who was playing the carolin. Link introduced himself and his desire to record a Norfolk and Western train when it pulled in a rural retreat. He asked Ms. Dodson to please keep playing and not stop under any circumstances until he returned. Normally, the carolin would sound at a predetermined time and only play for a few minutes. Since it was Christmas Eve, Ms. Dodson began playing carols on the carolin as Link requested. The town of Rural Retreat heard an impromptu Christmas concert. Link went back to the station and started recording, waiting for the Pelican or any train to arrive, which it did at 9.39 in the evening. It was indeed the Pelican. During the initial few minutes of the recording, the carillon dominates the scene. Off in the distance, the engine is heard approaching the town as it whistles for a far-off grade crossing. Soon, the chimes are completely drowned out by the overpowering sound of the train arriving in rural retreat, pulled by NW engine number 603, a J-Class 484 streamlined engine. The recording demonstrates just how dominant a train was when it arrived in a quiet town. After a few minutes, the pelican departs and fades off into the mountains. The only thing the listener is left with are the chimes from Grace Lutheran Church. It's an incredible recording and one that O. Winston Link is most known for. Sadly, one week after Link captured this moment, the line was converted to diesel engines. But what does O. Winston Link have to do with John Prophet and his sound recordings? In June of 1953, John loaded up his car with his wire recorder, the power converter and connecting cable, and headed east. He visited Altoona, Pennsylvania and Horseshoe Curve. He spent a day or so in Tyrone and Crescent, PA. And he even went as far as Cumberland, Maryland, each stop making recordings of the steam engines he was able to locate. Steam power in the western New York area was quickly being eliminated, but the NW was still maintaining its fleet of steam engines and would continue to do so for several more years. Perhaps John had a feeling, a gut feeling, that told him that if he wanted to photograph or record active steam power, he'd have to leave the Buffalo area. Eventually, 
John wound up on the outskirts of Roanoke, Virginia. There was no rhyme or reason to his trip. It's obvious why he went to Pennsylvania, but turning south and heading into Virginia is a mystery if for no other reason than to try and record what he could of the Norfolk and Western. These were the days before an elaborate interstate highway system would be in existence, so John would not have been on any dedicated time schedule. It's my opinion that he simply got in his car and headed southeast, always trying to keep whatever road he was on within sight of railroad tracks, which back in 1953 was fairly easy to do. Again, this was before an interstate highway system. John almost certainly had various timetables with him, so he might have been looking at a timetable to see when a train would be arriving in a town that he was relatively close to. This is just speculation, of course, but since John had no family or friends to visit in Virginia, we can only take a guess as to why he picked the towns he stopped in to record. Before we listen to the recordings John made on this trip, I want to first point out that he was more than a little critical of his NW recordings. In his opinion, he thought they were horrible. He told me he did everything he could to stop the sound from the locomotives and their whistles from overdriving the input to the wire recorder and causing distortion. He thought that perhaps something was wrong with his microphone. Well, perhaps the results of these June 1953 recordings were the catalyst for pushing John to abandon wire as a recording medium and start looking for a magnetic tape deck as soon as one became available in the consumer market. Regardless of the technology you use, there's nothing worse than going to great lengths to make the best possible recordings, especially after making a long drive from home to capture them, and you find that after weeks of work, you have nothing useful to show for it. It's kind of like taking pictures and using up an entire roll of film, and then you find that your finger is in every shot. My point to telling you this, to me, the N&W recordings do sound a bit harsh. John had to use his power converter to make these recordings, and that introduced a slight 60-cycle hum. To add to the mess, the buzzing sound from the power converter was captured by his mic. I've done everything possible to eliminate these noises, but overdoing the filtering and enhancement seriously degrades the quality of the trains we're trying to listen to. But make no mistake, you can certainly hear and appreciate what John captured even with the limitations of the technology he was using. They're great, but they're not in the same league as O. Winston Link's NNW recordings. In John's defense, Link was using magnetic tape for his recordings. John was using wire. Link probably had the best possible microphone he could use at that time. John had the crystal microphone that came with the wire recorder. John arrived at his first location on Sunday, June 28, 1953, the small town of Shawsville, Virginia, located roughly 27 miles southwest of Roanoke. The first train he caught was a freight train, number 85, heading west out of Roanoke and pulled by engine 2129, a monstrous 2882 Y6-class engine. The train would have left Roanoke around 11 a.m., and arrived in Shawsville by 1.02 p.m. The engine was pulling hard as it headed upgrade past Shawsville. Its final destination was Bluefield, Virginia. 
For some reason, John stopped the wire recorder after the freight train went by, electing not to capture the train fading off in the distance. He started the recorder back up when he heard the approach of another train. This time, it was train number 46, the eastbound Tennessean, and it was approaching Shawsville as it headed down grade. The train was being pulled by one of Norfolk and Western's glorious J-Class engines, the 612, a 484. It was now close to 1.40 in the afternoon at this point, and the train was heading to Roanoke, and finally Lynchburg. Shawsville was not a stop for the Tennessean. In a bit of irony on John's part, because he said time and time again that he didn't like any extraneous noise getting into his recordings, he left the wire recorder on after number 46 went past because there was a meadow lark in some scrub brush near the tracks and John liked the sound of the bird. He intended on recording several minutes of the Meadowlark's song, but another train made its approach. This time, it was train number 25, the Powhatan Arrow, heading west. As with train 46, number 25 was pulled by a J-Class 484, this time number 600. The Powhatan Arrow was N&W's crack train running between Norfolk, Virginia and Cincinnati, Ohio. Like train 46, Number 25 did not stop in Shawsville. After the arrow goes by, John left the wire recorder rolling and captured the sound of the meadowlark that was still singing away in the scrub brush. The noise of the train certainly wasn't bothering him.
After listening to this recording, you can hear the similarities between the O. Winston Link recording at Rural Retreat we heard at the beginning of this episode and what John captured five years earlier. Both recordings were made in small and relatively quiet towns. In each one, the atmosphere is shattered by the sudden overpowering presence of the steam locomotive and the train it's pulling. After what some may call an undesirable intrusion on the peace and quiet exits the scene, the beauty of the natural tranquility returns. Whether it's the ambient sound of the carolin of a church or the quietude of birds and a light breeze, the shock of the train fades away and your mind goes from a state of tension to that of euphoric relaxation. The calm returns. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Pretty deep, huh? Again, I find it ironic that John was so moved by the sound of the birds and other natural sounds around him that he wrote in his notes that he recorded the bird after train 25 sped past. The last train John recorded in Shawsville was a freight traveling east and headed up by engine 2195, another Y6-2882 Colossus. This recording demonstrates why John may have headed to Virginia in the first place. It's a well-known fact that Virginia is a state loaded with mountain ranges and hills. This terrain does wonderful things to the acoustics of something as loud as a train being pulled by a steam engine, especially one with as shrill a whistle that was on the Y6. A perfect example is the recording we're about to hear. The sequence opens with the sound of the meadowlark we heard earlier. The tranquility of the moment is shattered by the piercing blast of engine 2195's whistle but not the train itself. It takes a few seconds for the sound of the approaching train to reach John's microphone, and when it does, it annihilates the relaxing atmosphere. The train is moving at an incredible speed, but like the freight John caught earlier, he doesn't let the train fade away after it passes by. With plenty of daylight left, John drove out of Shawsville and headed 14 miles southwest to his next stop, Christiansburg, which is the county seat of Montgomery County in Virginia. Once he arrived in Christiansburg, John wasted no time in setting up his equipment near the passenger station the Norfolk and Western built in 1906 and operated under their own name until 1971, after which it was taken over and operated by Amtrak. 
John was in luck. By the time he got his wire recorder ready to go, N&W train number 24, a daily that ran between Norfolk, Virginia and Cincinnati, Ohio, was just getting ready to pull out of Christiansburg. It was now close to 2.30 in the afternoon, and the J-Class engine, this time number 602, was waiting patiently for the passengers to get on board and settle in. Once the high ball is given, engine 602 builds up steam and slowly starts to pull out of the station heading northeast toward Roanoke. You'll hear the train fade away as the quiet atmosphere of Christiansburg returns. A dog can be heard barking after the train has passed. John wrote in his notes that train 24 and the one he recorded immediately after train 23 were both known as all stops local trains. This meant that the train would stop at every single small town along the way from Norfolk to Cincinnati. It would also stop at larger cities like Roanoke, Lynchburg, and Richmond. You didn't want to be in a hurry if you rode either of these trains, as the trip could take over 20 hours one way. Think of 24 and 23 as daily commuter trains, just not for those on a tight schedule. After John recorded train 24, he stuck around Christiansburg until train 23 pulled into the station, heading southwest. It was now going on 3.45 in the afternoon. Number 23 was being pulled by engine 136, a 482 Mountain class engine that was very similar in appearance to N&W's J-class engines. The N&W streamlined engines 116 to 137 of their Mountain fleet, and even though they were very similar to the Class J engine, which ran with the numbers 600 to 614, mountains like engine 136 were built by the Baldwin Locomotive Works and not the N&W's Roanoke shops. Now pay close attention to the very end of this recording. You'll hear a man yell, Hey! Yo! And then John stops the wire recorder. This is the first of two instances where someone may have been trying to see what John was doing. Think about it. Here's a tall, thin man bent over some odd-looking apparatus while his hand is holding something that isn't immediately identifiable. And to make matters worse for John, he's parked near a railroad track and this odd-looking device with a New York license plate.
It was now going on early evening. John drove west out of Christiansburg and killed some time. Perhaps he stopped at a local diner and had dinner or maybe just a cup of coffee. Whatever he did to pass the time, John found himself trackside again a little after 5 p.m. He was waiting for one final train before he headed out of town and back to Shawsville. Shortly after parking his car, he heard train number 10 approaching, fast. This was another local that ran between Bristol and Roanoke and was due into Christiansburg at 5.09. When the train finally reaches John's vantage point and flies past him, it's more of a blur than a Norfolk and Western local. After train 10 faded away, John packed up his wire recorder, got back in his car, and took stock of his situation. Based on his notes, it's possible that Shawsville was where he made his home base while he was in Virginia. Whenever he made these trips, he kept the wire recorder, along with the power converter and a spare 6-volt battery, both in a heavy wooden box that he and a friend constructed, in the back seat of his car. By using this arrangement, John hoped it would cut down on the noise being generated by the converter from the vibrator it used to convert DC into AC. And since the box had handles on it, it made carrying his portable power source a little easier, even though it weighed over 100 pounds. John also carried a small wooden stool with him on these remote trips. He would simply leave the power converter with the 6-volt battery in the back seat of his car and run the 50 feet of power cable out a back window to the wire recorder which he placed on the stool. The microphone cable was only five feet long, but that setup gave him a little distance from the unit to try and minimize the noise. When John arrived at a location, 
he'd get out of his car and set up his portable recording studio next to the railroad tracks when he had the time to do so. If he didn't have time, for example if he pulled up to a location and saw an engine's headlight in the distance, he'd simply power up the wire recorder from the back seat of his car and lean out the driver's side window with his microphone. But now it was going on 5.30 in the early evening. John realized that even though he had plenty of daylight left, he figured it was time to start heading back to Shawsville. John found himself looking at the N&W timetable once again on the odd chance he could record one final train before he called it quits for the day. And he was in luck. N&W train number 26, the eastbound Powhatan Arrow, was due to leave Christiansburg at 5.49 p.m. and arrive at Shawsville a little after 6 p.m. John didn't mention the exact location in his notes, but he found a spot to pull his car into just west of Shawsville that was right next to the N&W main line. He set up his wire recorder in the back seat of his car and waited. And he didn't have to wait long. Almost as soon as he powered on his gear and started recording, he heard the sound of engine 603, another J-Class 404, bearing down the tracks as it pulled the Powhatan Arrow. Ironically, this is the same J-Class engine that O. Winston Link would record at Rural Retreat on the evening of December 24, 1957. June 29th was a Monday. John found another roadside diner and ate breakfast. After finishing a cup of coffee, he got back into his car and this time headed northeast to the town of Salem, Virginia, which is the county seat of Roanoke County. Back in 1953, Salem was a fairly large town with a population close to 7,000 people. As usual, John was looking for a good place to park his car at a spot very close to the N&W main line. He found the most obvious place, which turned out to be the best place, Mill Lane Crossing, which gave him perfect access to the N&W East-West main line. No sooner had John parked the car when he heard the wailing of a Y6 engine approaching fast. Train 85, a time freight, had just come from Roanoke and it was being pulled by engine 2171, another 2882Y6. By the time the train reached Mill Lane Crossing, it was going on 12.30 in the afternoon. Now once again, listen closely for something very interesting but brief at the tail end of this recording. 
In fact, I had considered not using the recording in this episode of Living With Steam because of the way it ends abruptly. However, I think what you'll hear demonstrates how John absolutely hated when anything got in the way of his ability to make a flawless recording. Or if something startled him to make him stop recording in a hurry. While the sound of engine 2171 is a little distorted, John captured the entire approach of the engine and caught its whistle from Mill Lane. But as the train is passing and John continues to record, someone comes up to John and says, Hello? But within a fraction of a second, John stopped the wire recorder and the sound of train 85 abruptly comes to an end. You really can't blame whoever it was that came up to John. Not too many people had seen a wire recorder before. And as I said earlier, not too many people had seen a tall, thin man standing next to the railroad tracks while concentrating intently on some strange-looking box with two dials spinning around on top of whatever it was. Nope, never saw that before, especially with the guy having New York license plates on his car. The more I listened to this recording, I had a humorous thought. Perhaps it was a police officer who came up to John. If this was indeed the case, it might explain why John shut down the recording so abruptly. If it was a cop, I can't imagine how John would have described what he was doing. Regardless of who it was or the cause for the abrupt stop of the recording, John remained at Mill Lane Crossing and caught a local freight pulled by M-Class 480 Engine 433. The locals called this train the Salem Shifter, as it was a switching train that served the industries of Salem. Engine 433 was almost always used on the shifter, and the men who worked on this freight loved their job. They usually got called for Roanoke at 6.30 a.m. and brought the train into Salem by 7, where it would perform switching duties of positioning and spotting freight cars in yards both east and west of Salem. The beauty of this job was that it allowed the crew to be home every night once the switching maneuvers were completed for the day. John recorded engine 433 as a pulled Salem shifter just west of Salem. In addition to pulling the Salem shifter, engine 433 made runs on the N&W's Abington branch, most notably the mixed train known as the Virginia Creeper. This is the same train that O. Winston Link would capture on both film and tape at Green Cove, Virginia. It's entirely possible that Link recorded 433 during his many stops at Green Cove, as the town, the passenger depot, and the Abington branch as a whole were perhaps his favorites on the entire N&W line. Engine 433 was saved from the scrapyard and donated to the city of Abington, Virginia in 1957, where it sits on display to this day at the entrance to the Virginia Creeper Trail.
Monday, June 29, 1953 was slowly coming to an end. But not before John would make several more recordings of the Norfolk and Western. His next stop would be Bonsack, Virginia, roughly seven miles northeast of Roanoke. It was now a little after 5 p.m., and the first train John saw was local number seven, pulled by engine 125, a K-Class 482. The train had five cars on it, and John recorded the train arriving and pulling out of Bonsack. Even though number seven was a local, it was listed on the NW timetable for Bonsack as a flag stop train only, meaning it would only stop at the station if there were passengers to get on or off. Based on John's recording, it didn't sound like any passengers needed the train to stop since it just continued to move through the station's platform. John recorded the entire run of Train 7, and he kept the wire recorder running because right after Train 7 fades away, John captured the Extra East, a huge freight being pulled by Y6 engine 2166, with engine 2126 acting as a pusher at the rear of the train. The train was carrying 117 cars loaded with coal. The pusher, engine 2126, was put on the train at a place called Boaz, just east of Vinton, Virginia, which was about four miles south of Bonsack. The purpose of having the pusher was to help the train over the grade at Blue Ridge, which was about five miles northeast of Bonsack. Once the train was over the grade just beyond Blue Ridge Station, the pusher would be cut off on the fly, then wait for instructions from the dispatcher about returning to the pusher siding at Boaz to wait for another eastbound coal train that needed assistance in topping the grade. The next recording John made was of the pusher, engine 2126, backing down the tracks and whistling for a grade crossing as it heads west past Bonsack towards Boaz. John's last recording in Bonsack, Virginia was of train number three, the Pocahontas, pulled by another J-Class locomotive, the 605. The train doesn't stop at Bonsack, Rather, it just runs past on its way to Roanoke and other points west. It was now a little after 7 p.m., and John would call it a night after this train went past.
John's trip to Virginia was winding down. But on Tuesday, the 30th of June, he was up bright and early and in Buena Vista, Virginia. The very last train John Prophet recorded in Virginia was Norfolk and Western No. 1, pulled by engine 131, another K-Class 482. An interesting note about this recording, John wrote down that engine 131 had a good whistle by request. I can only imagine John walking up to engine 131 and calling out for the crew. When either the engineer or the fireman leaned out one of the engine's cab windows, John introduced himself and what he was doing there. And since neither of the men might have known what a wire recorder was, they probably looked at each other in bemusement. Regardless, the engineer fulfilled John's request, blowing engine 131's whistle to what may have been a little excessive. The Norfolk and Western J-Class locomotive was first introduced in 1941, and they were simply some of the most beautiful streamlined engines ever built, and were a stunning testament to the railroad that built and operated them. There were 14 J's built in total, right up to 1950, 
They were used on the N&W's main line between Norfolk, Virginia and Cincinnati, Ohio, along with dozens of small towns in between. Along with the Class A and Class Y, the Js embodied what the N&W called their Big Three, and they were the pinnacle of steam engine technology at the time. As we heard in John Prophet's recordings, the Js were used to pull some of the N&W's most popular passenger trains, the Tennessean, the Powhatan, the Pelican, the Pocahontas, and the Cavalier. In the late 1950s, the Norfolk and Western finally realized that maintaining their steam engine fleet was becoming very costly when it came to their passenger service. It was the same old story, a tremendous amount of labor for very little in return. With the introduction of the diesel engine, the N&W discovered that fuel and maintenance costs for a diesel locomotive were far less than what it cost to keep a steam engine in full operation. When it came to passenger service, the Js were pulled and assigned to freight service only. By 1959, all of the J-Class locomotives were retired. Thirteen of them were scrapped. Only one J-Class steam engine survived the cutter's torch, the 611. It had been lucky, but barely. In 1956, the 611 was involved in a derailment where it flipped on its side. As devastating as that seems, 611 was repaired and put back into service, if only for a few years. When it came time for the N&W to retire and scrap all of their J-Class fleet, the option of saving 611 and putting it into a museum almost fell on deaf ears, if not for the efforts of O. Winston Link, who offered to buy 611 for himself rather than see it scrapped. Apparently, the 13 other Js were in far worse condition than 611, having spent many years as freight engines. With 611 being repaired and overhauled to return to service in 1956, it was a much better candidate for saving. 611 was donated to the Roanoke Transportation Museum in 1962, but it sat completely dormant for over 20 years. That's not a good thing to do to a steam engine. It was restored, however, and put into excursion service beginning in 1982. Honestly, the N&W couldn't have had a better ambassador for their company than 611. On July 18, 1992, the 611 visited Buffalo, New York to pull a very special excursion train that would run from Buffalo to Girard, Pennsylvania. Although special activities were planned for the passengers who got off the train in Girard, an optional 15-mile side trip to Conneaut Junction was available if anyone wanted to stay on the train while it was being turned around for the return trip. The train would take on passengers at the Amtrak station on Exchange Street in Buffalo and then ride the Norfolk Southern Buffalo to Chicago line down to Erie, Pennsylvania. From there, it was switched onto Bessemer and Lake Erie tracks for the remainder of the ride to Girard. Rather than ride the train, I elected to chase it as far as Erie and then catch it again as it was making its way back to Buffalo. At that time, I was working at a local television station trying to produce a documentary about Buffalo's railroad history. I had quite a bit of equipment at the ready in addition to a small crew. Even though the 611 never went anywhere near Buffalo during the city's heyday of rail activity, I wasn't about to pass up the chance to get as close as I could to this classic steam engine 
for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to capture the engine on film and audio tape. With my credentials of being affiliated with a local television station, I was able to secure permission to be on the Norfolk Southern property when the 611 pulled into Buffalo on July 17, 1992. I was able to get an interview with the 611's crew and also take a ride in her cab while she performed maneuvers to get her on the correct track to start the excursion the following morning. Yes, I felt like O. Winston Link. Before my film crew and I left 611 to rest for the night, I asked for a very special request from 611's engineer, Bob Saxton. I said, I know you're really not supposed to do this, but is there any way you can really put on a show tomorrow morning when the 611 pulls the train out to start the excursion? It would make for great video and even better audio. The Norfolk Southern property is near an area in Buffalo known to railroad employees and rail fans alike as CP Draw, the CP meaning checkpoint. It's at this location that several railroads converged on one another, some crossing each other's tracks, others crossing over to lift bridges that carried various railroads over the Buffalo River. This area was once a very busy place since many of Buffalo's railroads were serving the grain elevators that were prevalent along the river. The Delaware, Lackawanna, and Westerns line crossed over the Norfolk Southern tracks a few hundred feet away from CP Draw. Back in 1992, the overpass bridge was still there. I told Bob Saxton that since I had permission to be on the Norfolk Southern's property for the duration of the excursion, which was basically from July 17th through the 19th, I was going to set up cameras and digital audio tape recording equipment right in front of the permanently raised bridge at CP Draw. If you head over to the Living With Steam Facebook page, you'll be able to see some pictures of this location. Bob told me that he would pull 611 to just under the DLNW overpass bridge and then open her up for a show I'd never forget. He didn't disappoint. There were several other people in the vicinity of CP Draw while I was waiting for the 611 on the morning of July 18th. Cameras and microphones were at the ready. I looked down the tracks and into the Norfolk Southern Yard 
and saw 611 pulling the excursion train very slowly out from between rows of boxcars. The engine stopped once Bob Saxton got her under the DLNW bridge.
When 611 passed by, Bob Saxton leaned out of the cab window and gave me a big smile and a thumbs up. I gave him a salute and a slight bow. I finally understood why John was so enamored with these incredible machines. The last recording of the Norfolk and Western 611 I want to feature from the July 18, 1992 excursion is one made in Dunkirk, New York, where the train had stopped to let off passengers or take on passengers who wanted to ride into Buffalo for the remainder of the trip. I chased 611 as far as Erie, Pennsylvania, and if I wanted to catch it when it arrived back in Buffalo, I needed to start thinking about turning around and heading back. Since the train had stopped in Dunkirk on the way to Girard to let passengers on, it would certainly stop in Dunkirk on the way back to let those same passengers off the train. On both occasions, the train had stopped where the old Nickel Plate Road passenger station in Dunkirk was once located. I situated myself in a small park-like area about a quarter mile up the tracks from where the train would be stopping. But this area was special because it was situated in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Several streets crossed the tracks, and there were crossing gates at each of these spots. My theory was, not only would I get the sound of the bells from each crossing gate as the gates went down, but 611 would have to blow its whistle pretty much on a continuous basis through this area because of the many grade crossings. I hoped it would make for a spectacular recording. As soon as I parked and got out of the car, I began to set up my audio gear as quickly as I could. No sooner had I connected everything together, I heard 611 blowing its whistle in the distance. I had arrived just in time. And the area was suddenly alive with people of all ages. Everyone was anxiously waiting to get a glimpse of this incredible steam engine and its train. Since the railroad tracks went right through the center of this populated area, all folks had to do was walk into their front or backyards and they'd see 611 only a few feet away. I started recording with seconds to spare as 611 pulled away from the spot where it had discharged the passengers for Dunkirk. Then it slowly picked up speed as it came out into the open, blowing its whistle for the entire time. It was incredible. And after three minutes, it was all over. The peace and quiet of this Dunkirk neighborhood returned to its early evening routine on a warm summer evening in July. But throughout this entire excursion of chasing 611, I kept asking myself, is this how it was for John? Was he as nervous as I was when he started recording? Was this how it was done? One thing was certain. The first person I was going to play my 611 recordings for was going to be John Prophet. I think it goes without saying that he loved them. I guess in that one moment, I had truly followed in his footsteps. Yes, that's how it was done.
The Norfolk and Western 611 was removed from excursion service in 1994, not to run on her own power, but sit in a museum until 2015, when it was restored once again and returned to service. But up until 2015, her future as an operating steam engine and ambassador to her parent company was in limbo. It costs a lot of money to restore a steam engine and bring it up to modern operating and safety codes, but restored she's been. YouTube is filled with dozens of videos about 611's return to glory. After John passed away in 2002, I really treasured the recordings I made of 611 more than I ever had earlier. I was devastated by his death. I had lost a great friend and mentor when it came to learning about railroad history. I always felt that my recordings of 611 were made in John's spirit. Even though I had what may have been the latest and greatest technology available at that time, I always imagined John at the same time he was making his recordings, how crude they initially seemed to me. Yet he achieved incredible results with what he had. A wire recorder was cutting-edge technology from the late 40s through the early 50s. And if you listen to John's recordings very intently, you realize there's more going on in each segment that's way beyond a passing steam engine. In many ways, John captured the sounds of an America that no longer exists. O. Winston Link did the exact same thing. Very little, if anything, of what John recorded exists today. His recordings preserve the greatness of a lost industry, one that every town, village, or large city was intertwined with. And like O. Winston Link's Norfolk and Western photographs and recordings, John's recordings demonstrate how thousands of communities throughout the country were fortunate to have had the opportunity to live with steam. You've been listening to Living with Steam, featuring the sounds of trains and railroad operations in the Buffalo and Western New York area. This program was written and produced by Aaron Heverin, and all of the original sound recordings were made in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. Technical advice for this episode was provided by Ken Miller from the Norfolk and Western Historical Society. For more information about the NNW, visit nwhs.org. Special permission to feature O. Winston Link's recording, Train 42, The Pelican, arrives at Rural Retreat, Virginia, from his 1958 record, Sounds of Steam Railroading, The Fading Giant, was provided by Ken Miller, who acted as co-producer of the reissue of all six volumes of O. Winston Link's Sounds of Steam Railroading series. For more information about O. Winston Link, visit the O. Winston Link Museum website, part of the Historical Society of Western Virginia, at roanokehistory.org. Once you're on the site, click the button to the Link Museum. To purchase O. Winston Link recordings, visit owinstonlinkrailwayproductions.com. I'd also like to express my sincerest gratitude to Gary Prophet for giving me some much-needed insight on John Prophet the man, in addition to John Prophet, the New York Central employee and dedicated rail fan. For additional information, including photographs, maps, and other historical content relevant to each episode of Living with Steam, please visit our Facebook page 
at facebook.com forward slash livingwithsteam, all one word. You'll also find links to many of the websites that contain historical information needed for this episode. And while you're on our Facebook page, please take a moment to ask any questions you may have or even make a comment about the show. I'd certainly appreciate your feedback. If you enjoy listening to Living With Steam, please rate the program on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This concludes Season 1 of Living With Steam. We'll return later in 2021 with many more of John Prophet's recordings. In the meantime, please continue to visit our Facebook page for continuous updates and videos that will be coming soon. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.